Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Algorithms are archetypal. So if we think of like how advertisers for decades have been tapping into Jungian archetypal images to activate archetypal energies and behaviors that exist in all human beings. Algorithms are archetypes, but you can't see them. They're amorphous. They live in the psychoid unconscious. You can't touch them. You can't observe yes. them. You only see them in their manifestation, but they're even more difficult because they don't always reach that symbolic level of imagery where you can observe it in front of you. And so I realized these algorithms that are controlling us are archetypal. They're tapping into all of our shadow material and they are designed to take us away from our connection to source. Hey everyone. All right. Are you ready for a conversation that completely exploded my mind? A few months ago in my newsletter, I asked people if they knew anyone who quit social media and was talking about it openly, publicly. I got back a bunch of names and one of the names that came back was Jane Clapp. When we started researching her and preparing, I got so psyched right away. I was just drawn to her, but I had no idea how much our conversation would mean to me. We do start talking about why she left social media, but it goes way deeper than that. Jane is a Toronto-based Jungian somatics teacher. If you don't know what that means, you're not alone. She's basically pioneering a field. She began in the wellness industry decades ago and over the years has accumulated more training than most doctoral students, I would say. She studied in somatics, psychology, Reiki, and many other bodywork and coaching methodologies. Eventually, she made the massive commitment to become a Jungian analyst, which is no joke. It's a seven to 10 year process. She's in the advanced stages of that pursuit right now and is working to combine somatics, which is a field of bodywork and movement studies that is used to help people integrate things like trauma and essentially regulate their nervous system. As you'll hear in our conversation, she sees her commitment to the work of Jung as more of a calling than a job or a career. The way she integrates so many disciplines and then applies it to our regular lived experiences is amazing. And as you'll hear, Jane left social media and shocker, she's really clear that she's gotten healthier as a result. Using Jungian theory as a lens, she digs into the ways social media is tapping into deep subconscious parts of us. And for me, I knew social media felt bad and I have a lot of ideas about why. I've talked about it a lot, I've written about it a lot, but Jane offers a much deeper view that completely resonated with me. And these ideas, are they can be applied to really anything you put your energy into, not just social media. This conversation was a real moment for me. I'm sure you'll hear it come through in the in the conversation. It finalized my commitment to leave social media by confirming my intuition and grounding me back into the deep wisdom of concepts like archetypes, the collective unconscious, 
body and nervous system wisdom and the crone phase of a woman's life, which is definitely where I am now. I so hope you enjoy this. All right, have at it. There goes Michael. Okay, now it's just us two. (laughs) It's so great to meet you. Thank you. I've loved exploring what of your work I can find. And you actually were recommended to me by several people in my community when I asked them for examples of people who were staying away from social media or talking about their relationship with it at least you came up. Hmm. Well, it's funny now that you can't read as much about my work because I used to be so available everywhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's interesting. What's that been like to say? St- and when did you step back? I would say I started experimenting with really longer breaks in early, early 2021. And then I dropped Instagram I guess it would have been like late February. Like I deleted my account and I didn't archive it. I'm like, I'm done. I would love to hear personally, and I know people would love to hear too, The maybe what made you realize you needed to leave mm. and then what it's been like? You know, I've lived with anxiety and complex PTSD um, my whole life. And also not having like family of origin backup and being um, – a parent on my own. Like I wouldn't say I'm a single mom because her dad has been involved her whole life, but you know, supporting myself, running a studio, trying to, you know, create some financial security. It was a place of safety for me in terms of being able to expand what I was doing. And I knew that with my business background, that was a really smart thing to do. So Mm -hmm. it it gave me a sense of safety to be able to reach out to people, to connect with people and all over the world. It felt so like there were so many possibilities that weren't available to me without that. Right. But with the heat of the pandemic and the heat of George Floyd's murder, I could feel the volume and the intensity of social media like crank up quite substantially. Almost instantly. I remember my body. I I wasn't sleeping for weeks last Mm -hmm. summer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and it was a lot of my anxiety was the volume of what was going on there. Mm -hmm. For sure. I was also afraid of like, was the bottom going to fall out? I've spent most of my life feeling like I'm swinging on a trapeze, but and I've done that for fun, but without a safe, without a safety net under me, you know, and that, and that mm. building this social media following and knowing I could go there to sell things, to talk to people, to find work, to, it, it created this sense of like this safety net. My daughter's 17. She just went away to university on the East coast of Canada, wow. a plane right away. And, uh, I have a partner during the pandemic, we've all been hanging, we all hung out pretty tight. Mm-hmm. And I realized how much time I was just hypervigilant on my social media, checking who was pissed at me, checking who I needed to answer, checking what boundaries I needed to set. And I'm just like, wow, there's something really wrong here. And the level of stress that I'm feeling, how much of it can I take control of? And this is not who I want to be. 
You know, mm-hmm. my daughter, I don't know how many times she asked me to put my phone down or knew I wasn't listening to her when she was oh talking to me. Yes. And the shame I felt because of that. And and I know, too, it's like it did come from a place of fear. I would say yeah. my predominant emotion when I would go on on social media was fear. And I'm like, this is taking me away from my connection to source to the God inside of me, to what is most important, to changing the lens that I see the world through. And so it was a confluence of things. The other thing that was happening was I'm, I'm a Jungian. I'm now an advanced candidate in terms of my Jungian training. Yeah. And so I was entering my exam period in the spring, and I couldn't sit still and read a book. Like, oh I could and like you cannot dabble in young. Like there I see people like occasionally write about their dabbling. I'm like, you cannot dabble in young. You have to sit down and be confused for a lot of the time, and, time. until it sinks in. I couldn't sit still and read a book. I thought I had a learning issue that yeah. I couldn't sit still and read yeah. a book. I would pick up my phone every I know. Every freaking thirty seconds to two like, this is not right. And, uh, and so I'm like, I have to somehow dig in. And so when I dropped my phone, um, it took me about three weeks to be able to sit still and start reading. I, I could take it in bite-sized amounts before then. So that was a big thing, too. I'm like, I can't actually learn, learn. I can't, I know. I can't sit with complexity. I can't sit here and, and read really complex language. My neuroplasticity was really negatively impacted by that constant checking social media. I'm like, I know it's real. It's and yeah. So it seems like a shitty complaint to have because so many people are just surviving, but just surviving. Right. I know. Right. Yes. Yes. I don't want to, I don't want to be a jerk about, Oh, poor me. Like it was, no, but that's your reality of of work. And, and it's, and it, it, it's not as though you just experience it when you're, it's, it invades every, for me, all 24 hours of a day. Yeah. I would dream about things. I would wake up in the middle of night. All right. It was never not there. Never. Always. First thing I thought I would pick up my phone. I'd look at my phone right? I've done some 12-step work in, in my life. And, um, you know, the first thing you do in the morning, you could, they say you can, like, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, Laura. Or do oh, we, yes, please do. You can fuck <laughs> up, you can fuck up your day from your bed to your toilet, right? <laughs> like, you can, you can, like, how have I never heard that one? I, yeah, like, you can fuck up your day. So I'm like, what am I doing as soon as I wake up? And I'm like, am I connected to myself? Am I, am I connected to gratitude for actually waking up and being able to breathe again? Like, what am I thinking about? The first thing I think about, the first thing I'm doing is I'm exposing myself to what is called in Jungian work, the collective unconscious. Oh, um, my God. Uh, I, I ha- I'm, I, I'm freaking out because <laughs> I have not – you are saying everything that I have felt and more, and I've said a lot. I've talked mm-hmm. about this a good amount. I've written about it a good amount, but you're like inside here expressing mm-hmm. it in a way that I haven't felt before. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm kind of freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Because well- it's just so true. And I reckon, I feel it in my body is like, 
pure resonance. Just, yeah. Okay. So I didn't want to cut you off because it's, it's hilarious that I'm thinking this is like different than what I want to talk to you about. Cause of course it's connected, but you were saying you were tapping into the collective unconscious right away. I describe it with like, it's like a labyrinth where you go into a labyrinth and it's meant to keep you in the labyrinth for as long as possible. Yes. Then you couple in my work because I've really specialized in the impact that trauma has on the body and now more the psyche and the spirit these days. They bring you in and they try to keep you disconnected from your core sense of source inside of you for as long as possible. And right. So I would sit on the phone, my phone, like scrolling or or looking at posts or doing my quote work. And I could feel my heart rate increasing. I could feel my nervous system get more and more dysregulated. And um, all the people I was interacting with, I had no boundaries. Their energy was Mm -hmm. going in. Mm -hmm. I'm very sensitive. I'm a very, very sensitive person, good and bad to the energies that exist around me. And I'm not built for that. I am not built to have that many people coming into my energy field in in a day. Like I, I I don't think anyone is, Mm -hmm. but I think there's some. That's actually something that I've written about. I just my circle of concern became way too big, like the world, (laughs) big. Mm -hmm. Mm I and and. it's like, um, God, that labyrinth metaphor is so perfect. There's a a myth, a Greek myth that talks about that, about, you know, as Theseus goes into the labyrinth and the only way he finds his way out is with a golden thread. Well, Mm -hmm. algorithms are not meant to help you find your way out. They're meant to keep you stuck there as long as possible. And they feed off of fear, right? And scarcity, and uh, yes. discourse, D-I-S, right? If we look at the origin of the word dis, right? Disease, disc, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Disconnection. Mm-hmm. And the thing about trauma and bringing together the algorithms, people are already going into social media if they ha- are living with the effects of trauma mm-hmm. with a virally tenuously flipped on prefrontal cortex, yes. right? A little like wavering right? Borderline Mm -hmm. being able to keep that kind of prefrontal cortex executive functioning on. Algorithms are designed to flip your lid and to keep it flipped for as long as possible. And, and I'm like, I can't, if I'm actually quote a trauma expert and I understand the impact on the, of the psyche, then I can't really participate in this. Basically algorithms are meant to colonize your psyche. If we want to talk about, they're meant to colonize your psyche. That's that's what they're meant to do. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't care about you. They don't care about your well being. No, you're the, a non-human. You're a number, avatar. That's what I mean. We want yeah. this avatar, mm-hmm. and that's all you are. Oh, got her. Put her in there. Keep yeah. her going. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we used to think, like, I had this amazing course with um, someone in my Young Game program. We talked about how advertising really manipulates people's psyches. And I'm like, hey, hey, guess what, Jungians? Have you studied freaking algorithms? Because this is next level. Like, I even, I want to get the word out in the Jungian world as well, because there's so much conversation about 
the collective unconscious, the colonizing of the psyche, what that does in terms of making people project shadow onto each other. You know, it's those people over there who have the darkness in them, so to speak. I don't know how it can be a healthy place in the long term. Some people use it in a way that might be helpful for them. But in all my research, I have not found any data that has confirmed that there's net benefit on a mental health level. And Instagram is at the top. Really? Oh, yeah. Because of the the visual slash... How fast the images come to you and because yeah. they, they speak on a more symbolic level than language level, they yeah. go in faster, right. they, they activate as complexes, you know, these like autonomous splinter psyches that we have in us and they activate them really quickly because it goes in through s- symbolic image instead of language. Mm-hmm. It's automatic. It's like, it's so fast. So, and we're, we're going to keep this thread going right into your work. So you decided to get off, I presume, because not just say, leave your account floating there and not touch it, because it felt out of integrity with who you were to have anything up there. Did you sort of waver on that decision at all? Or were you once you were clear, were you kind of clear? Well, what I did is I deactivated my account and I canceled it. And then what Instagram does is they give you another 30 days to actually cancel it. So you lose everything. So that 30-day that period, I, I, I have a coach. I work as a business coach. I worked through it with my, um, with my analyst, therapist. I, I put a lot of thought into it. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't trust myself. Like, I do not trust myself that I can go back into it and not get hooked again. And I want to make the shift. I actually want to withdraw my membership in the wellness worlds and the somatic worlds. I'm like, I revoke my membership. I don't want to participate. There's something really off right now. I don't know what it is. And there's amazing somatic practitioners out there for sure. But how it's manifesting on social media and how people are losing their own sense of what's right for them versus like, oh, we don't meditate anymore because I'm like, what? You know, I work Mm. with practitioners who have lost their center because there's this mass, these tides that shift and carry everybody on social media. So I wanted to revoke my membership in that world in some ways because I also know that being a white woman leading in trauma, it's time to step back. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm stepping back. Like, please, people who can speak to collective trauma better than me in public spaces – Please go for take it. my place. Yes. Go for it. Yes. And I wanted to actually go into the rite of passage that happens as a Jungian analyst when you go into stage one exams. So I I needed to pass into that liminal space and I'm still sort of in it. Like I'm not doing mm. many podcast interviews. I'm saying no to most invitations to show up in public spaces. Oh, you're speaking directly to my soul. So <laughs> what's it been like? What was it like when you, you know, revoked your membership card and left? And what, what's it been, what's that been the experience like? I noticed that I just started like studying things that I knew would never fly for me to talk about on social media. Right. I, I started nerding out on things like liberation theology and Christian mysticism. I'm not a religious person and diving into areas that I know I never would have been able to speak about on social media. But because I feel like I edited all my activity through this oh, lens, through this right. lens, right? 
did you experience any, what did I do? Any, do you experience any kind of scarcity lapses where you think, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to become irrelevant. I'm just going to I'm obviously all the time. I'm actually okay. 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 (laughs) Well, I, I think part of my, I think part of my job is to become less relevant if I'm really in my work. Mm. Like I'm 48 years old. This isn't the time. This is the time where my inner world has to become as important or more important than my outer world. That's what's supposed to happen at this point in my life. Yes. Uh, yes. Hello. So being relevant, what does that mean any, anyways? It's, I'm relevant to the people, to my analysis or clients I'm working with. I, we, those relationships are so intimate and powerful. What, like, who do I need to be relevant to? Like who? I know. What? Like I what know. is that about? I like know. what am I, I, I have a, a publisher who's like ready to look at a book proposal. I'm like, I, I don't have anything to say if, if it's like that urge to constantly produce and stay relevant is so fear-based. Oh yeah. And it never ends. It's an Mm -hmm. endless, it's a, it's a goalpost that never stops moving. Having achieved things as I'm sure you have, Mm -hmm. you just may, I mean, almost immediately after the the moment where you feel like, yes, this is exciting. I'm, I did it almost immediately. If not at the same time, you think for now, what's next? Totally. And I mean, what had to happen this year for me is what would be called a sacrifice of the ego, not necessarily an Eastern terminology where my job at my stage in life, if I'm really in my work as a Jungian is to start to listen to myself with a capital S more than my ego. So that my soul is really driving the bus a lot more or self or whatever you want to call it, my higher self. Mm -hmm. And um, that part of me wants to be in communion with my environment and my life in a much more meaningful way. I think about I was doing a lot of work in trying to commune with my environment differently. I, I live um, at the, on a rail path in Toronto, and it's, it's like a, it's an urban center, but there's this path with nature, like urban nature that seems to survive. And I remember for, for months, I was like, I'm going to see something beautiful on my way to work, and I'm going to see something beautiful and awe-inspiring on my way home. And every time I did, because because I wasn't looking at my phone, I wasn't thinking about social media. Yeah. And, and I remember walking with my daughter, who is a remarkable human. Like, I like her as much as I love her. If she wasn't my daughter, I think she would. Um, yeah. And she started pointing things out because she just got used to hanging with me. We had a lot of time together being in lockdown and we'd go for walks and I would just point things out to her that I wouldn't normally notice. And I started noticing she was taking wonder in how the um, wind was shaking this like particular type of tree that she looked up what kind of tree it was and started going through the city looking for this type of tree. And and I'm looking at her, I'm like, wow. And she told one of my friends a few months ago that she sees the world differently in part because I'm seeing it differently. Wow. And, yeah. 
And she's always been a deeply thoughtful human being. But I am so grateful that we had this time together before she left home. It's right. it brings tears. Like I I I, know. I, it, I mean it's... my daughter's twelve, and so we're in like you know different eras of that time of a teenager. You know, she my daughter's at the beginning of entering that stage, and your daughter is mm. sort of wrapping that up and has just left home. And I, yeah, I I feel in my heart what you're saying about she's always bugging me to get off my phone. It was Mm -hmm. way worse when I was on Instagram and Mm -hmm. social media, but it's Mm -hmm. still more than I would like. So I love that you were able to, to show her that. Well, it, the, the depth and the beauty and the moments that I get to experience because I'm not addicted to social media. It's, I can't even tell you. And it's a daily commitment to connect with all the the blessings I have in my life in a way that wasn't possible before. And there's yeah. like, there's one story that I think says a lot about the shift. I remember there's a river called the Humber river in Toronto and you in the um, late summer, early fall, you can see the salmon jumping and spawning. <laughs> and last year I went with my partner and my daughter and um, I had my camera out because I was going to film it and I was going to find something wise to say about it and post it on social right? media oh my god i'm like ew i'm i'm like oh i was that person you know and we're I mean, all that person yeah it's uh, really so gross I was, so i was looking through my phone last year watching i caught a salmon jump and then i i had something deeply philosophical to say about it that i thought was really smart at the time and then i went i went back a couple weeks ago maybe yeah to the same place and I was just watching and it didn't even cross my mind to film it or to capture it and and I just every time the salmon jumped I would just go I'd just scream in excitement I'd be like oh my god (laughs) and and it's just entirely different I'm not trying to capture moments to to reproduce them nobody knows where I am in the world it feels so good if I go if I go on vacation nobody knows where I am no, you actually just get to be there instead of to perform being there. Yeah, that's great. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy. And we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, 
you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description. And then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. Well, let's 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 go to where I wanted to start. We're now like <laughs> a half hour in and I just I'm eating this up, but Okay. So you're a young Ian. Mm-hmm. Analyst. You have to use very particular language. So okay. I'm an advanced candidate in the with the Ontario Association of Jungian Analysts, which means I'm seeing people for Jungian analysis under supervision. Some people take 10 years to do this training. It's very wow. long. It's People do it because it's a calling. It's not mm-hmm. like a regular psychotherapy training program. So I'm in stage two. So I work with clients now. I've had a clinical practice working with people somatically, uh, and through movement for many, many years. And so and how my, was, what was your training for that? Oh, lots of different things. You know, I started as a personal trainer. I studied functional movement. I studied mm-hmm. yoga with my now past teacher, Diane Bruni, mm-hmm. uh, tensegrity touch therapy, fascia, fascial stretch therapy, Reiki, yeah. um, Oh, God, so many different things. You can go to my website and read all about no, it I'm if you want. No, I'm just curious to give but, people kind of a taste. Okay, so you were well steeped in this somatic therapy. Mm-hmm. And and then I'll let you finish. And then you yeah, yeah, yeah. into this. Yeah, so I started training uh, as a Jungian analyst over two years ago. To But the thing about the Jungian training program to be an analyst, you have to have 100 hours of Jungian analysis to apply. And so, and then you have to have 150 hours of analysis to pass into stage two. Wow. And then you have to have- being working with someone? No, myself. Oh, you have to be analyzed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's still- (laughs) to be a patient. Yeah. And then they call it an analysis. And then I have to have another 150 hours of personnel analysis to plus many hours of supervision and work. So it's not, it's not something people do for money. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's, you know, it's, 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 it's deeply, uh, it's because I would say the Jungian approach coupled with my understanding of trauma and the neurobiology of trauma has been one of the most depathologizing things I've experienced. Depathologizing. Um, yeah. That. Meaning I realize that a lot of what I experience is part of like being a human being on the planet, but also that I'm not a problem to be fixed, that there's something really powerful in our psyche that is self-regulating and wants us to come into wholeness. And mm-hmm. a lot of the work is about following that. There is a real focus on if you need to emotionally separate from your parents, that's important. If you, It's really about finding out who you are and finding a way to interact with the collective in a way that you are choosing. 
So it's sort of like stepping away from the masses and trying to find your out who you really are and then eventually returning but with much like a much like a fairy tale if you think of the stories of the you know the hero's yeah, journey the hero's and- journey well young he has a lot to say about the unconscious but that um, until we bring what is unconscious into consciousness it will direct our life and we will call it fate and so it's like this hero's journey is bringing to me it's bringing all this stuff that's on in the unconscious to consciousness mm-hmm. through experience like mm-hmm. we have to go through the experience of it, not just learning about it. That's the hero's journey, mm-hmm. and it can happen in a million different ways. Would you? Does that sound true? Yeah, in a and, very brutalized, summarized yeah. fashion. And some people see like the hero's journey as a very like quote tr- more masculine, you know, Heroine's approach. Journey. Yeah, and even then, um, it. The other thing about Jungian work that people don't necessarily talk a lot about is that he believed that like people who came into Jungian analysis in the second half of life, it was really about a religious crisis of like, and religious not meaning like, what is my religion? It's sort of like, where is my meaning? What do I have to carry me in my suffering? Where do I find meaning? How do I shift into feeling being in more dialogue with myself with a capital S and how that really changes us. So a lot of what I'm interested in, in terms of soma and psyche and faith is, is how all those three things interact with one another Mm. and how do we really uh, have a direct experience of God, goddess, source, creator, the universe, and how do we feel that in our body? How do we learn how to, that, can be our true co-regulator. How yeah. does how does that become where we go in times of suffering and pain? And um, yeah, yeah. That so. Seems like a very unexplored territory. I'd say so. That's incredible and mm. seems so. What an extraordinary thing to commit yourself to. An extraordinary process of discovery and learning and teaching to commit yourself to. Mm -hmm. This isn't new, what I'm talking about. If you look at Christian mystics, if you look at mystics of any tradition, what they're talking about is what's called original participation. Owen Barfield talked about this. It is, it is a direct, it's a direct experience of faith that you are not disconnected from it, you are in it. And and mm. and if you think of like Richard Rohr's work about the body and sexual and Oh, what about Carolyn Mace? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's with she's with a program too that he runs, right? The CIC. And <laughs> Edward Edinger is sort of he's now obviously passed, but he's brilliant around really dissecting religion as particularly the Judeo Christian tradition and how we are so disconnected from it and that's so harmful to us how harmful it is to us as human beings in general to not have this direct experience to feel it's out there and so this idea that it's out there is ultimately what keeps us very overwhelmed and dysregulated because right it's the original god of of the god of zeus right Yes. Meets out punishment and reward versus creation, beauty, love, what's life-giving, that we 
we don't feel like we're a part of and and circling back to social media that's what it's meant to do yeah you don't feel your body in social media and mm-hmm. the the other part is not just that you don't feel your body if we don't have the sense of faith and meaning as a felt experience inside of us we will go seek it outside of us mm-hmm. and i think a lot of what of our dis-ease is seeking it outside of us as individuals and not in a connected way and in a community around a, a shared faith or a shared understanding of meaning. And like it can be attached to anybody, any influencer, any person, anybody who says they know the way, which is like anybody right now, right? Mm. Or politics, mm-hmm. like that becomes people's religion and faith. False gods. So. <laughs> So my question is, with archetypes, what do they have to teach us? Can you explain what archetypes are? Archetypes are human-inherited modes of functioning and patterns of behavior. Okay. Can you repeat that one more time? Human-inherited modes of functioning and patterns of behavior that you can't really see until they take the shape in symbolic form or in some type of action behavior. So we, so is it fair to say we act them out? We act them out, yes, but they also can take forms like the mother archetype, the father archetype, and the many different types of mother and father archetypes that can exist, right? Mm-hmm. The wicked stepmother, you know. The, and that would be a, so versus acting out, that would be a form or? An archetypal event would be a graduation, birth, death. Got it. Okay. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, that helps. So, and then inherited, that seems like an important word. Inherited meaning they're in us. Yeah, they're just in us. It's like the soup we're born into in some ways. According to Young or whomever, mm-hmm. why are they there? Why, why, why archetypes? Why? That's a good question. Why are they there? Well, they just are there. They're, they're just present. There isn't necessarily a why. What can we learn from them then, or what are what what's the value in studying them? I've had I've one supervisor say that everybody's born with an archetypal deck of cards. Is it true that every archetype has, very simply stated, uh, positive and negative? Yes. Manifestations. There you go. Yeah, positive and negative poles. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if it gets too spun out into the negative pole, you gotta. You got to zap it, so to speak, or bring it back to center so that it's not ruling your life. Studying what archetypes are present in our society can be really important. Like the scapegoat, the scapegoat about that, the scapegoat archetype type, the other archetype, the group archetype. We can observe on a collective level what archetypes are really getting charged up and impacting the way that we're interacting with one another and how that's powering up collective complexes, right? Yeah. And so that can be wow. really pow- that can be really powerful on a broader broader level. Yeah. Yeah, do you feel as though or do you believe as though that as individuals we participate in the collective and can influence it? depending on we our can't, own mode we can't, of being. We can't not participate in it. 
Right. There's no way we can't, like, we're always, we're, we're always, we are participating. Yes. But part of what is making the unconscious conscious is really trying to determine how we aren't going to participate or how we are going to participate in the collective. And I, I, and I think that's sort of our job is to become conscious of how we're participating in the collective and how we, we choose not to, or how we choose to, and start to take responsibility for, how we're showing up in, in relationship with other human beings. And um, that's sort of the deeper work, right? Oh, yeah. Some people say that yeah. Young's work was in some ways like anti-fascist, but, you know, yeah. there's criticism, yeah. serious and legitimate criticisms of his work as well. I, I identify as post-Jungian, so, mm. so really taking his, his work and what was problematic and making sure I apply it in ways that are less harmful and – Um, -hmm. getting sober is the sort of maybe biggest example that I have personally of the, of becoming conscious to my own patterns and and how I participate in the world. And I see getting, you, you said social media addiction. I view it very much that way. Like, how do you view addiction in archetype terms or in collective unconscious or in Jungian terms? Like how do you? A possession of a complex. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's actually like a, a, a possession of a complex that overpowers your ego and starts... Explain re- complex again. Complex is like a collection of ideas and images constellated around an archetypal core that share a similar feeling tone. Mm. Right? So some people think complexes are created due to trauma. I don't know about that. I think... All human beings are complexed in different ways, you know, inferiority complexes, money complexes, sex complexes, mother complexes. Like are they always negative in nature? Are they always dysfunctional? No, 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 okay. no, 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 not at all. Not always. Okay. Yeah, complexes aren't always negative for sure because if they have the archetypal core, they have the positive and negative charge, right? Okay. So addiction is like basically a complex is dominated your consciousness and taken over, much like possession. You know, mm-hmm. if if we go back to the theory of possession in religion, it's not that dissimilar. Something else is running the show, you know? That's right. Well, and it's all putting, it's all your power exists outside of you, both mm-hmm. spiritually and, and physically, really. Okay. <laughs> I could keep going down there, but so, <laughs> so I know. Where else has Young, do you see him folded into our culture where we don't, we wouldn't necessarily, and this might be too big of a question, where we don't necessarily see it? Because the way I see Young's work is like Michael brought up, um, our producer brought up that it's a lot like Shakespeare. It's like we're never not really swimming in his work and interacting Mm -hmm. with him, let's put it that way, interacting Mm -hmm. with him and his ideas Shakespeare, that is. And I think that's kind of the same if Jungian's work is is valid and true in, in a lot of ways, which I believe it is. It, we don't see it. It's what's familiar becomes invisible, or we don't even have the language for it. We don't really know it. It's just become part of, mm-hmm. of the way that we live. What people don't understand is he was measuring people's complexes through something called the word association experience, where which was also inspired by Pierre Genet's work, where he was measuring people's physiological reaction to words to see what complexes were present. 
Myers-Briggs came from Jung's work, right? Originally, it was huh. changed and adapt, adapted. The word association experience uh, experiment can also be tied to the lie detector test, which wow. is which is interesting. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And av- of course, it can because it's it's measuring ph- physiological responses to words. Think and, about well, yeah language. Yeah, and yeah. think about advertising, as I mentioned, working on an unconscious level, right? Images. <gasps> are really tied to, again, like how you can influence the unconscious because Freud only looked at the unconscious as a place of repression, but Jung, you know, split into personal and collective and then psychoid and, and really saw how we were, we were swimming in a collective soup in the unconscious as well. So it's all there. I mean, but. Those are great examples. Just a few to sort of paint the picture of how this actually plays out. Can you explain synchronicity as Jung saw it? Yeah, it's like an acausal event that corresponds to like an inner experience, an inner subjective experience, something objectively happens kind of around you, but it's acausal. There's not like a, you can't explain why it's, why it happens. It can happen in an event or it can show up as like a symbol in your life somewhere. I think some of this stuff, the reason some of it is like anything that is powerful and carries a lot of power, it it can be very difficult to describe in plain language or impossible. So I wouldn't expect you to have these like tidied up answers. So... We talked about the collective unconscious. He's popular with folks who, and there's this like increasing number and sort of increasing level of conversation around this. Um, people are doing neuroscience research in the, into the ways psychedelics could be used to treat people, and that he, I believe, said he, psychedelics could lay lay bare a level of the unconscious that is otherwise accessible only under peculiar psychic conditions. Mm-hmm. What? was he talking about there? He was talking about, I believe, numinous experiences. Numinous what experiences. Would a, what would be that? What would what, Like a, an experience of awe and rapture that is non-volitional, that puts you into this state of feeling into something much bigger than you. So Lionel Corbett is a Jungian who talks a, a little bit about psychedelic experiences. The problem is, you know, I have friends who take people on journeys. The problem is, is that coming into contact with that level of unconscious material, particularly from the collective or objective psyche, can be way too much for people to integrate. And it can put people into states of psychosis, which they can't come out of. So especially if you're high neuroticism like already. Right, if that would I trade neuroticism, right, or like you don't have a strong ego center to be able to integrate this material. After it yeah. can, it can be really tricky. Like I've worked with folks who have had really negative psychedelic journeys because they weren't screened properly, they weren't with somebody who had proper integration, they mm-hmm. were in groups that were too big, and there was too much energy floating around in the room. There was, you know, I've heard of unwanted sexual contact or un, you know. I'm not sure. I I don't think some people think that maybe Jung wouldn't have been super excited about these fast 
fast, intentional journeys into the collective unconscious. The Red Book is all about his breakdown after Freud and his confrontation with the collective unconscious and how he had to work really, really hard at staying, having one foot in reality. He had to do a lot of work to not fall deeply into it. So, so yeah, it can be incredibly powerful. I have dear friends and colleagues who I would trust taking people on those kind of journeys. And then a lot of people are using it without proper preparation and screening. So I don't think it's something I would mess with. Yeah. And it's so new. It's such a nascent field, but I I think looking at it as a fast acting thing is maybe where the, (laughs) where the, I'm skeptical of anything that seems fast acting. Well, Um, I, you know, I have a fellow Jungian who who does this and they really assess someone's ego strength. So the, the issue with trauma is not that they, there isn't access to the unconscious. It's that it's so constantly pushing up against a weak ego center that too much is coming up. It's not that yeah. there isn't access. And the, the collective unconscious, our unconscious, it's not a benevolent place. You don't know what you're going to come in contact. That's a really good way to put it. It's You don't know. It's so vast. You don't know what you're going to come in contact with. So there can be uh, experiences where people have new, where people have numinous experiences where they find uh, a way to connect with archetypes that are deeply nourishing and supportive. But how do you know what you're going to meet? You don't know. And so you could meet demons or angels. Like, how do you know what you're going to? And I mean that figuratively. So I know. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not against it at all. But I do not think it's for someone who is like borderline just holding themselves together necessarily. With that being said, I know that folks like Gabor Mate, who's worked with Mm -hmm. people who are really at the end of their rope in terms of being able to survive their addiction has used, you know, ayahuasca and other plant medicine to create these openings for people. So I wouldn't, I'm not an expert in the psychedelic journeys, but I do think there needs to be deep integration work afterwards with people who understand the complexity of the psyche. Well said. You mentioned ego strength. So we typically talk about ego as something that's bad. No. We need to get rid of. No, no, that that would be more Eastern. Like that would be pers- yeah. that would be more persona to me, right? That would okay, be like- so so explain that. Cause I think it, I think it's beautiful to think of the ego as something that we should seek to ha- to build an appropriate level of health for and with. Okay. So the ego is is the center of consciousness, but not the entire personality. It's concerned with like reality testing, a sense of who we are, continuity of time, kind of the capacity to discern. It's the gatekeeper of what we pay attention to that comes up from the unconscious, unless it's overpowered by a complex. So it's not ego isn't like how proud you are of yourself in Jungian terminology. It's sort of it would be if we were looking at the window of tolerance model, a strong ego would imply a wider window of tolerance. Explain that. I don't think most people will know what that means. Oh, the window of tolerance. Oh, did I just okay. I just stepped into another That's pile. Okay. Of- That's why I'm here to like <laughs> No, meaning like now I have to like find a way to speak intelligently about this. <laughs> it's 
Yeah, okay, okay, it's like sort of like how your capacity to manage stress, stay present, and not become overwhelmed and dysregulated in your autonomic nervous system, essentially. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's a window of what we can tolerate, mm-hmm. <clears throat> what our nervous system can tolerate. Okay. And then as that, it, and so maybe repeat what you said about the ego that. The ego strength could mirror like how uh, narrow or wide your window of tolerance is. Can a window of tolerance be expanded? Of course. I mean, like safety, stabilization is always first. That's the same thing with Jungian work. If someone has a very weak ego strength, you're not going to dive into memories about their childhood. Like you're not going to dive into even with dream interpretation because that's a large part of the work. I don't touch dreams when people are really overwhelmed. If that dream looks like it's going to be uh, disturbing or deeply have high like emotions attached to it, unless it looks like there's a there's some nugget in that dream that could be really supportive and resourcing for them, I, I'm not going to touch it. That's it's, not going to help them. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to yeah. be focusing on ego strength first. Mm-hmm. I like that. I I'm thinking a lot of people in early recovery. I, I've also had a lot of experience with the 12 steps, and I think there's some really beautiful spiritual wisdom within them. Oh, Bill uh, Wilson was inspired by Jung's work. You know that, right? I know. I know. I know. Mm-hmm. It, that comes through a lot. But one of the ways, one of the things that either got communicated poorly as as the 12 steps and the the sort of book of Alcoholics Anonymous became carried through the fellowship was this idea that your ego was your enemy and that your ego needed to be, you know, left at the door, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see a lot of people coming into recovery with these big egos. Like they're pretty, uh, they're pretty smashed. So I think, uh, and maybe this is a lot of this is probably I don't think that's actually what Bill Wilson meant or what was actually meant to be communicated. I think what they were probably talking about was more along the lines of what you're talking about, that disconnecting from the persona and a lot of the protection me- mechanisms that we probably have that people have in place to keep their ego safe, what what weak ego they have. Yeah. So just some thoughts on that. I, I think about that a lot. Especially as it relates to women. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I think it's- white guys, right? He was originally talking to white male alcoholics in, in yeah. the 12 Steps. Yeah. Have you seen Dr. J- Jamie Marich's book, uh, Trauma-Informed no. 12 Steps? Ooh. No. Oh, I- my God. Well, I'm, I'm going to definitely need to read that for my book I'm writing. <clears throat> She's brilliant. Jamie, oh, Dr- she, yay. She, Dr. Jamie Marich, uh, um, Trauma-Informed 12 Steps. I, I think anybody who has a history of trauma who's trying to work through the 12 steps should absolutely have that book as their buddy, 100%. That's wonderful. That's Thank you. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And so many people that are – a lot of people that listen to this are in recovery and so um, – and struggle with aspects of AAA as I did. I think that will be really helpful. All right. So we'll start to near the the end of the conversation and this is a good segue into what we were just talking about, individuation. Mm-hmm. So like the integration of an ancient unconscious, I don't know if that's exactly the right word, with our modern consciousness or the current consciousness. 
I would say individuation is like the process of becoming who we were kind of meant to be in the world and the unifying of opposites. And so that we come into wholeness. So Mm -hmm. that means knowing our shadow better and being able to be with it and hold that too. So individuation is more about the coming into wholeness of who we really are. But that doesn't mean like all of our shadow parts are gone. It just means we're aware of them and actually being able to come into a fuller expression of who we truly are in our essence and yeah, so that's, but the, the issue I was just talking about this today in a class that the idea of individuation when it's in, in falls into more Western capitalist hands, it's more of the individualism versus individuation. Mm-hmm. Individuation is also about coming back into connection with an inner God image, a sense of being part of a greater whole. And so that's a really important aspect of individuation that get, that I don't think the word implies. I mean, individuation, as I see it, is is first you're part of a whole. First mm-hmm. you are. Mm-hmm. And then, and if you look at sort of, I, I um, study the chakras and, and stages of development there, and it's the third chakra after you've established root stability, safety, the most basic, you know, concerns of physical being able to be alive, staying alive, family, home, Mm -hmm. belonging to a a whole. And then as you move up and later in life, I'm sure psychologically is when we individuate. We don't individuate when we're babies or toddlers. We individuate as a process. Mm -hmm. And so I think that just just echoing what you say about the way we think about individuals individuals or individualism, especially in the West, is as if it's a mutually exclusive relationship. You're either an individual or you're part of a group. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it has to be both Mm -hmm. to be healthy. Right. Because as soon as a group, um, the group archetype is dominant, it means that the individual's capacity to think and discern for themselves is negated and not valued. But we always have to be in a place of discernment. Otherwise, we just get swept up in whatever's going on in the collective. And do we really want to participate in all of that? We have to be able to decide for ourselves where our center is and stay in our integrity as well. So just to close the loop on where we started and then we will end. Where net net, to use my MBA language. Hmm. Where have you landed with social media? Are you relieved? Are you grateful? Are you like, thank God I did that? Are you like getting off of it? Like getting off of it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What? And how's what's your work experience been like? Like afterwards? Yeah. Like, am I still making enough money to survive? (laughs) Yeah. And yes. And are you? experiencing like what's been surprising about it or yeah uh uh yeah I'm really happy that I went off I'm extremely grateful for it as well and for how that it exists that that it had that experience that I I was able to meet the people I did like I would Mm -hmm. not I'm so grateful that I had it when I did and I'm equally grateful that I was I was able to first of all afford stepping away because I have a 
a strong newsletter list, which helps me communicate with people. So I'm grateful for it in the past. I'm grateful that I was able to step away and that I've had enough support and solidity to be able to stay steady in all of that. I don't see it getting better. I see it getting worse for people. I, I see it devolving quite quickly. And I don't think it's going to be a healthy place for people to be in the long term. And I think we're going to see massive change within the next couple years around understanding it as like the new smoking, so to speak, for our bodies and our psyche. So agree. But I also have a lot of compassion for people who really need it to survive. Like, yeah. And I and I I really state that with humility and non-judgment that it is essential for a lot of people to survive. And, and even for folks, that's their only social interaction. I totally get why you need it. And so it's not a black either or thing for me in terms of it's good or it's bad, but I don't see it getting better. And I think, I think it's going to end up, there's addiction centers in the U.S. opening up just for internet and social media addiction. I know. Yes. I know. So it is. There's programs like there's. It's so kind of funny because it's called it's a talk space program, which is like a digital uh, <laughs> program <laughs> that that opened up for social media addiction. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Where can people find you? You can find me not on Instagram. You can. <laughs> you you can not find her there. No, um, JaneClap.com is. Uh, website and then Yungi and Somatics is my other website and that's about it. It's yeah. kind of liberating, <laughs> right? Yeah, make myself scarce and see what happens. Oh, I love it! Mm-hmm. I love it, mm-hmm. and it's I can't personally. It's ex- extremely. This is feels like a very serendipitous conversation, and I get, I have to thank my community for. I send out newsletters too, and they came back your with your name. Hmm. I'm just so I'm so grateful that I was able to talk to you. Well, thank you, whoever said my name. I'm really happy to have connected with you, Laura, and I'm super excited that you are on this like cutting leading edge of things as well. Thanks so much. Take care of yourself. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot, especially now that I'm not on social media. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. 
Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.